Well, good morning, everyone. If you don't know already, my name is Ricky Ragone. I am the music and arts and youth pastor here at King's Chapel. Occasionally, I get the chance to preach, and I am glad for the opportunity this morning. Um, so you may have heard it said here at some time before that we like expository preaching because it, it forces us to preach texts we wouldn't otherwise choose. In my case this morning, it forces me to preach a text earlier in the calendar year than I would choose. I'm a very staunch, no Christmas before Thanksgiving kind of guy. I'm a curmudgeon when it comes to it, but expository preaching, here we are. So for you, I'll get over it. I even, had to, I even listened to Christmas music while I was doing it. My whole life is upside down. But we're going to do it anyway. So we are, as you saw during our scripture reading, we are in Luke chapter 2, and we are finishing up that chapter, looking at verses 15 to 21. But before we dig into that, as always, let's just remember what brought us here. And I'll just go back to last week. Last week where we saw a full display of God's sovereignty, as we saw him using Caesar Augustus, arguably the most powerful person in the world at the time, for his purposes, to bring Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem, where it was prophesied that the Savior would be born. God takes this self-proclaimed God on earth and demonstrates that there's actually no other God but the triune God of the Bible. And if we think that we're bigger and better and smarter than God, newsflash, we're not. No one is. And Caesar's decree for the census bringing Mary and Joseph up to Bethlehem shows us just that. No one is too powerful for God to use. And there's no place too lowly for God to use. Right? So when Mary and Joseph, they arrive in Bethlehem, there's no room inside for them to stay anywhere. So they're forced to have a baby in an animal stall. It doesn't get much lowlier than that. I thought, like, us having a birth in our house was crazy. But that's even crazier. I can't even fathom that. But that's what they do. And the Savior of the world is born, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and laid to rest in a manger. The King of glory enters the world in humility. Not only is there no place too lowly for God to use, there's no person too lowly. For God to use. So after Jesus is born, the Savior enters the world and God chooses to send his messenger, an angel, to a group of men that were considered outcasts, that weren't trusted by the general public. They were forced to live outside the city. To the shepherds, he sends this angel. And growing up, I didn't think of the shepherds as outcasts. I always thought they were just this cute little guy with a lamb over his neck that came and sat outside the nativity scene. That's what all the, the figurines were. But these guys were gritty. These guys were, were, they were wilderness dwellers. They were not, not the type of people that you would think God's going to tell them first. But that's what he does. They weren't on top of the list. But yet here they are, and the glory of God shines around them. They're filled with this fear, but their fear is stilled by the words of the angel, and he says, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
The shepherds are the first to hear that good news. And they're not, they're not just told what the news is, but they're, they're told where they can find him. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And as was mentioned last week, that's a pretty unique sign. Like, you're not going to just go into Bethlehem and be like, man, there's five of them in a manger. Which one? The one with the halo, of course. We've seen the stained glass. But they go. And as, as these... As the angels depart before the shepherds actually make their leave for Bethlehem that we get to this morning, there, there's, there's this proclamation of who the Savior is, how they're going to find him, and all of a sudden, just the multitude of angels come out with this doxology, glory to God in the highest, and on, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Absolutely amazing. The angels are proclaiming the result of the gospel the day Jesus is born, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Can what do you guys just bring me the clicker? Because otherwise I think I'm gonna keep crashing pro presenter. Interesting. Oh. <laughs> All right. Okay. Is my mic still on? Okay, it is. All right. Well, we'll Thankfully, my iPad lights up. Okay, so, where are we? Tremendous doxology, on earth with whom he is pleased. The peace that the angels sing about is not a universal peace, just here's just peace across the world. It's a peace that would be purchased by the Savior's sacrifice on the cross, a peace given to those who trust in him. Obviously, the shepherds didn't know that, but they knew enough. And that's where it leads us to our text this morning. We pick up right after this doxology. And as the story continues to unfold, we're going to see that when good news is proclaimed, response is inevitable. And we'll see our passages in five different responses to good news. And they'll be up there eventually, but I'll just tell you that there's... Hallelujah! Um, verse... Uh, the first point we're going to see, the first response is going to be responding in action, verses 15 and 16, the shepherds go. Responding in proclamation in verses 17 and 18, the, the shepherds tell. Responding in meditation in verse 19 as Mary treasures these things up. Responding in worship in verse 20 as the shepherds glorify and praise God. And then responding in obedience as Mary and Joseph name their son Jesus. So that first thing we're going to see here is responding in action. This is our first response to good news. Verses 15 and 16 again. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. I can only imagine these shepherds after the angels depart from them, right? They, they must have had this look of just pure astonishment of like certainty and uncertainty all at the same time, if that can exist. Like we're like, I believe it, but I don't understand what just happened. This is crazy. And then they're just like, we got to go see this. The reaction is, they said it, we got to go. There was no hesitation. There was no thinking it over. The angels appeared to them, the glory of God surrounded them. There wasn't much to think about. There wasn't like a, let's go later. 
let's just hang out for a little while. They were just like, no, we need to go now and see this child that they just spoke of. There is no time to waste. There's an, an urgency in the response to what was just told to them. And in this moment, the shepherds put aside whatever cultural baggage would prevent them from just going into the city and looking for a child. There doesn't seem to be any inhibitions within them. There's a certainty of what they need to do, and it doesn't matter if they're liked or not, whether people trust them or not, whether they're dirty or not. They're going to go find this baby. Why? Because God trusted them with the good news. They had a confidence because the angel just told them. I, I think of what Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who cares what the city thinks of us? We're going to go find this baby because an angel just told us. I mean, if angels woke you up in the middle of the night, you probably wouldn't be concerned with like, oh, I don't want to seem nuts. You're just going to go. And so they go. I'm not saying an angel is going to appear to you in the middle of the night. We have the scriptures. I don't want to sound, sound nuts up here either. Which God tells us. And Luke tells us they go in haste. They rush out of there. Like, I wonder if they just leave the sheep behind. They're like, ah, they'll be all right. Their response tells us of the significance of the news. They're rushing to find Jesus, like George Costanza rushing back to Jerry's apartment to answer the phone as Vandalay Industries so he can maintain unemployment. They had to get there. But I think their response here tells us that their going was not out of some curiosity to see what they were told, to see if it was true. They went in such haste because they knew what the angels told them was true. They didn't say, let us go and see what might be there. They're like, let's go see this thing that has happened. There's a, there's, they believe what the angels say. It's a sure thing. Their, their reaction is that of what we've heard here many times as we've talked about the difference between good news and good advice, right? Advice is something we should do. News is a report of what has been done. Dr. Timothy Keller. The angel brought them good news of great joy. This is done. Today a Savior is born. Who is Christ the Lord? This will be a sign. You will find a baby. Though none of those are imperatives to say, you've got to go find this baby, the news in itself causes the response to go. i got to see this. If someone came up and said, hey, gas next door is 99 cents a gallon, do they have to tell you to go get gas? <laughs> we just go and get the gas. Right? The shepherds didn't need to see for themselves to believe it. They wanted to see for themselves in excitement for what they've been told. I mean, think about it. The moment that this world has been waiting for, he hasn't, God has not spoken to his people and revealed himself in this way for 400 years. They're waiting and waiting and waiting. You ever have those times where you're waiting for something so long that you forget that you're waiting for it? That's probably where they're at. These shepherds were part of generation upon generation upon generation of people waiting for this Messiah. And then finally the news arrives. The Savior is here. Savior? 
Whoa, let's go see. That's, they respond in action. And there's kind of a contrast between the shepherds and the religious leaders at the time. In Matthew chapter 2, wise men come and tell Herod, hey, there, we, we saw the, the stars and the king of the Jews has been born. And, and Herod assembles the chief priests and scribes, the people who should have been more excited about this than anyone. And do they go to see what has been done? No, they send the wise men to investigate. They're just like, yeah, you go check it out. There's a big difference there. They had become their own rulers and authorities. The, the Savior coming as king, it didn't excitement, excite them. There was actually, they were troubled. They wanted it investigated. They should have been the most excited. But these shepherds, these lowly shepherds, are pumped. They're excited. They want, there's an urgency. They want to see it. And they go. What's our response to the good news? Right? Does it excite us still? Even if you heard it a thousand times. Does the fact that the word made flesh dwelt among his creation and, and, and lived a perfect life, died a death in our place, rose from the grave to offer us salvation as broken sinners, does that excite us? Does that give us an, this feeling of we got to go? We got we to gotta respond in, in faith and trust in that? Or, and we got to tell people about it. Do we, do we have that response? I know we're not in Advent week yet. We're still a week away, but it, it certainly feels like it. And when we take the time every year to ponder just what Christ did, where he was up in perf perfect glory and decided to come down and dwell with man, does that excite us? Is that still mind-blowing? Do we have the excitement to see and experience Jesus like the shepherds did? Their excitement doesn't just stop upon arrival. That's where we see our second response Responding in proclamation. Verses 17 and 18. And when they saw it, the child, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So they make it to Bethlehem. And they find this baby in the manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. And they look around and, and everyone, they're like, all right, everyone. You're not going to believe what just happened to us out in that field. And they start to tell them about it. Many people, many people refer to these shepherds as the first evangelists. We're on point number two back there. It's just if you were wondering. <clears throat> as the first evangelists. So the first to tell this good news to others. Outside of the angels, of course. And that's, that's a, a little nuts to think about. Like the shepherds tell Mary and Joseph, what they've just heard from the angels. They don't know what other people know. They just know what they've been told, and they start telling everyone about it. They, it's almost like they break into the very first rendition of Mary, Did You Know, right? But they tell everyone, everyone who would listen, who was there, about this message, this good news, this Savior who's come. Because good news is something that's meant to be spread. It's meant to be proclaimed. We tell people about it. Going back to the gas example, right? You find gas at 99 cents a gallon. You're really not going to tell other people? Everyone's paying $9 a gallon. You're going to be like, well, I'm not going to tell them. Like, no, it's good news. Let's tell people. Get that gas. That's how good news works. 
At least it should. Can you imagine if they didn't tell them what happened? Like all of a sudden these, these shepherds just come like up like looking for a baby in a manger. They're like, whew, shepherds had a little too much of the wine out there in the field. But no, they, they tell them, this is what happened. An angel appeared to me. This baby, this is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. We heard it firsthand from an angel who shone around us. And then the angel started singing. It was, it was insane, but it was awesome. And as they're telling, it says that people wondered at what they said. The people were marveling at it. They were listening earnestly in awe of what was being told to them in sheer amazement. Are we amazed by the gospel? Is it still something that floors us, that we look at and wonder, like, really? The gospel is every bit amazing now as it was the first time we heard it. And it should be our prayer that we never lose wonder over what Christ has done. That's why we gather every week, right? To be reminded as a family, here's how redemption was accomplished. This is for you. This is the good news. We were reminded of the salvation so that we don't become complacent. We stay in wonder. We relish in the grace that we've been shown in Christ. Which brings us to our next response. Mary's response, point number three, responding in meditation. So our next response, obviously not from the shepherds, but this is what Mary did. As the shepherds are, are, are responding in proclamation, it says in verse 9, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. There were those that were just astonished, like listening, like, what? And then there's Mary who's just savoring every word that's spoken. I mean, who doesn't love to hear good things about their kids? right? Like, oh, you're so great. Now imagine your, your kid is the savior of the world. You're going to want to hear that. That's a lot to take in. You're just going to soak it in. And she's not just treasuring up what the shepherds are saying. She's probably thinking about everything she heard nine months before as she's carrying Jesus, these conversations she had with Elizabeth, right? Starting all the way from when the angel Gabriel said to her, don't be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called the son of the most high God. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. She's treasuring that up. She's thinking of that. She's thinking of what Elizabeth says to her. Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And now the shepherds and are here and they're, they're telling her that they came and that they, the angel said it would be a savior who is Christ the Lord. All these things are playing through her head and she's just letting them build up and treasure. She's relishing every word because she knows how blessed she is to be used of God in this way. Right? We saw that in her song in chapter 1. Good news should be treasured up. It should be meditated on. Oh, turn it on. You said, I thought you said I turned it on. Whoops. Let me just get us up to speed here. There we go.
all the words in this book are to be treasured up, to be meditated on. And as I look at Mary, even in this one little verse, verse 19, and she treasured these things up, pondering them in her heart, I look at myself and go, do I do that? Do I read this? Am I treasuring it? I mean, I read it, I want to understand it, I want to understand who God is, I want to be encouraged, but do I treasure it up? Do, do I, I read it to take every word and just soak it in, to hang on to it, to savor it, like a, like a piece of good meat, like you don't want to swallow that too fast, it's so good. That takes intentionality. It takes time. And I can only stand up here, I can only speak for myself from up here, right? But I need to do a better job personally taking the intentional time to savor and treasure God's Word. It's harder with some books than others, right? Like Leviticus, like that's a little hard to treasure up. That's where everyone's Bible in a Year program stops. Honesty is the best policy. I'm just saying what everyone knows to be true. But that's God's Word. His law, and His law is supposed to be a delight to our souls. We need to treasure it up, all of it. The tough passages, the good passages, the encouraging passages. I go, I try to get through everything fast in my life. Not running, but eating. I eat fast, I drink fast, I try to learn songs for the band fast, uh, I try to get things done for, for what you see on the screen fast, which is why there's so many typos. It's not good to try and go through things quick. And so, when we approach God's word, we don't want to just get through it fast. Like, how quick can I really, how quick can I really read through this book? Like, how long can I sit in this? That's why I like, that's why I like preaching. And, and despite, like, I had a, a very busy week. I didn't want to not preach, because preaching forces me, in a good way, I'm going to sit in this text. I'm going to look at these verses, and I'm going to get something out of it that maybe I wouldn't have if I just said, yeah, so the shepherds went and they told people about it, and that's cool. Like, to glean that from the text takes time, and I, I like the opportunity. I relish the opportunity to give a text the time it deserves. We can learn a lot from Mary. In just this one verse, a few simple words, Mary treasured all these things up, pondering them in her heart. People listened and they wondered, she listened, and she treasured. Both are good. May we be filled with wonder, but we also meditate and soak in what we're hearing. Responding in meditation. And next, we see the shepherds responding in worship because of the fulfillment of the good news that they heard. Verse 20. And the shepherds return glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is, this is the third response from the shepherds that we see since they hear the good news. At first, they went and responded in action. Second, they went and responded in proclamation. Now they're responding in worship. Because as with anyone visiting a couple with a newborn baby, don't stay too long. The shepherds came, they saw, they said, aw. They told them about what the angels did, and they're like, back to our sheep. Hope they're alive. 
and they leave. But they just had this experience in this short period of time that was probably more tremendous than anything they've experienced in their entire life. And what erupts is this overflow of all, and it's worship. Because that's what worship is. It's our response to what we have seen and heard God do. Whether it's responding to what we've read in the scriptures or what we've seen God do in answering prayer or what we've heard God has done through someone's testimony, a fitting response to God revealing himself in that way is giving him praise and glory. And that's what the shepherds do. And that's what we saw the angels do last week. They proclaim who this Savior is. They talk about who his role, he's going to be a Savior, and then they're like, glory to God in the highest, and peace among those with whom he is pleased. Like they just erupt in worship and doxology, because that's what the revelation of God does. Just a day, ago, a day ago, the shepherds are just in a field with sheep, and that's pretty much their life, day after day. Like, make sure no wolves come, and make sure the sheep stay alive, and that's what we do. But suddenly, they're the recipients of the news of the Savior. Next thing you know, they're rushing off to find a baby. They're telling everyone about it. And now they can finally take a second and be like, what just happened? God is amazing. And they give him glory. What else could they do? It's exciting to see God at work. And it's even more exciting to be participants in it. I think of our, uh, of our Easter services, and I know it should be you know, really every service, but Easter is a special service. There's so much joy in this place on an on a Easter morning, on a Resurrection Sunday. And it's not just because we're, we're pumped for eggs and ham. right? We are declaring the gospel in song, in word, in testimony. We're seeing it in baptisms. And it's just so exciting to keep seeing and declaring and hearing all that Christ has done. And that makes us erupt as a church in joy. It's not because of the tempo of the songs or the style of the songs, but because of the joy of the gospel. The gospel moves us to respond in joyful worship. But the gospel only moves us to worship if we believe it. And, and, and the shepherds knew with absolute certainty that, the, that God was at work during this whole process. They believed what was told to them in that field. They believed they would find a baby lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling cloths. They believed that what they witnessed was the newborn Savior. And they left with this unshakable hope, and they praised and glorified God. The source of their hope was the object of their worship. The source of their hope was the object of their worship. And the source of our hope, Jesus, needs to be the object of our worship. Right, what's the source of our hope this morning? What is the object of our worship? What are we worshiping? Because this, this phrase can go right and this phrase can go wrong. Because if we put our hope in the wrong place, we're putting our worship in the wrong place. The source of our hope Jesus Christ, the gospel, the redemption paid for on the cross in his blood, his resurrection from the grave, that needs to be our hope. That we belong to him. And that affects 
that our worship is going to go towards the one who saved us and redeemed us. If our hope is anything in this world, anything in front of us, our hope of, of just, I just need more money. My hope is I just need a little more money and I'll be happy. We're going to worship that. I want a better job. We're going to worship that. I just want, I just want a family. We're going to worship that. None of those things are bad. But when they become the source of our hope, it takes away from where the object of our worship should be. The source of our hope is the object of our worship, and that needs to be Christ. Because what Christ has done is a finished work. It's good news. It's a hope that we can trust in because it's been accomplished. There's nothing more to be done. The gospel gives us a hope that is not tied to us needing to do or needing to achieve anything. We can see, savor all that Christ has done and just respond in faith. That's the gospel-centered life. Looking to Christ, seeing the hope, responding in worship, whether in thought, word, or deed. Because worship is not just songs. We glorify God in our actions and the way we live and how we treat others and the attitude of our hearts. When the good news comes, we respond in action, proclamation, meditation, worship. What we'll see here in this, this final verse, just looking at my timer, probably going to wrap up early today. Didn't know this was going to go so fast, but responding in obedience. Chapter 2, verse 21. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. After the shepherds depart, some time passes, right? We get to this next week, eight days later, and Mary and Joseph, they follow the Jewish law and have Jesus circumcised. Circumcision was this outward sign of God's people identifying with him, setting them apart from the rest of the world. This covenant that was given. And the interesting thing about Jesus being circumcised is it's not him identifying with God, right? He is God. Jesus getting circumcised on the eighth day is really him identifying with humanity, specifically his own people. If we think about it and bring it to its logical conclusion, God is identifying with man so much that he's also undergoing this circumcision. He identifies with the same people that John talks about in his gospel account when it says Jesus came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Jesus leaves the glory of heaven to identify with the people that he knows will reject him. But I can't stop at that part of the passage in John. But it says, For all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. All who believed in his name. Going back to our passage. More substantial than the act of him being circumcised on the eighth day is the name that Jesus is given here. Now, it wasn't a part of the Levitical law that you had to name your child on the eighth day. It says, in the eighth day, he will be circumcised. But at some point, that became a part of the tradition, right? We saw it with John, now we're seeing it with Jesus. And what's nice for these parents, 
just thinking about all the parent stuff with having a baby. They don't have the process of like having to think of baby names. That's just a convenient thing because that can be nerve-wracking. Like they don't have to go through like, well, we don't want to call him John. And people make toilet jokes. We don't want to have that, so we'll think of something else. Mary and Joseph aren't like, really? we got to call him Jesus? But now every time someone stubs their toe, they're going to yell his name in anger. We don't want that for our son. No, they're just walking in obedience. They're, this is what they were told he's going to be named. They didn't have to do that. The naming process was quite simple. God told us to name him that. That's what we're going to do. And he was called Jesus, the name that was given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The circumcision identifies him with his people, but his name identifies him with his purpose, with his essence, who he is. This Jesus, his name in the Greek, Jesus, in the Hebrew, Yeshua, Joshua, literally means Jehovah is salvation. God is salvation. His name captures his mission and his purpose. He will be the one to provide that salvation because he is God. Everyone else up to that point named Joshua or Jesus, because there were people with those names, that name points to the Jesus. Here, the Redeemer, the Savior. There's salvation not just because of the name, but the person behind the name. If I legally change my name to Jesus... I still don't have the power to save people. I'll just look like a weird cult leader. So I'm not going to do that. Jesus' name has power because he is the power of salvation. Matthew 121, the angel tells Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. It does not get much more straightforward than that. Between Mary and Joseph, they knew by the time of his birth, that he would be the Savior, the Christ, the reigning king whose kingdom will have no end. And for nine months, they walk around knowing this. And on the eighth day, they respond in obedience to what the angel had told them, and they give him this name. The very name that we must call on to be saved. The very name that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess as Lord. They don't know how everything's going to pan out. They don't know the nitty-gritty of, of what it means for Jesus to purchase and achieve salvation for his people. But they knew what was called of them, and they responded, and they said, his name will be Jesus. We're not called to give Jesus his name, but we are called to trust in his name for salvation, because he is salvation. Have you responded in obedience to that call? Do you believe that Jesus truly is what his name says he is? That he is the Redeemer. He is the source of our hope. One worthy of our worship. Have you trusted in him? Jesus himself shows us perfectly what it is to respond in obedience. We see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Paul says this, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus gave his life on the cross in obedience to the Father in order to provide for us salvation from our sins. There's no greater act of obedience than that. There's no greater act of love than that. And there's no greater news than that. Amen? So what is our response this morning? Are we taking action as a result? Are we proclaiming that truth, the truth of the good news of who Jesus is as a result? Do we treasure up his word in our hearts? Are we treasuring this gospel in our hearts and pondering them? Are we devoting ourselves to worship daily, not just Sundays? But are we worshiping and responding to him? Jesus is the good news. He is the promised Savior. How will we respond? I'm going to invite the band up. I'm going to pray. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this passage and and the examples that we see of proper responses to your calling. May we think of all these different areas and examine our hearts and our lives, as we should always do when we look at your word. Let it be a mirror to us. We ask that by your Spirit's power that we would repent of the sin that, that, that prevents us from moving in, in obedience and, and responding in action and proclamation. Help us get to get that out of the way that we can live as we are called in response, not out of obligation, but out of an excitement for the news that we've heard and we've experienced in being redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Father, I pray for anyone here who, who hasn't put their faith and trust and hope in Jesus, that today you would move them to respond in faith and trust in his name for salvation. Help us to look to you as our only source of hope that we may praise and glorify you in every aspect of our life and thought, word, and deed. That Jesus our Savior would be glorified and magnified above all else. And it's in his name, the name of Jesus, God is salvation, that we pray. Amen.